Threads from the National Tapestry is now on YouTube. Search for Threads from the National Tapestry on YouTube and subscribe to our channel. On the channel, you'll find full podcast episodes paired with relevant photos and maps about each topic. It's another great way to listen to the show. Just search for Threads from the National Tapestry on YouTube and subscribe to our channel. It was January 1872. In Lexington, Virginia, and on the campus of recently renamed Washington and Lee College, former Confederate Lieutenant General Jubal Anderson Early was on a mission. A mission to venerate R.E. Lee and to give Southerners a positive spin on their defeat. Not only to address the recent past, but to arm them and their descendants with, as he and his disciples put it, a correct narrative of the war. This is the story of an ideology that simmers even to this day. This is the story of the creation and foundations of the lost cause. The last five letters of history spell story. And that's exactly how history should be taught. Numbers and dates have no soul. Such presentations fall flat, for history is alive and relevant. Welcome to Threads from the National Tapestry, stories from the American Civil War. This series will feature events and people from that period and will strive to make you feel as if you were there to show that history is indeed a story. In January of 1864, Confederate Major General Patrick Claiborne saw the handwriting on the wall. Aware of the South's dwindling manpower, the man born in County Cork, Ireland, an adopted son of Arkansas, stunned his military colleagues when he suggested Southern emancipation of slaves and recruitment of African Americans into Confederate service. When met with immediate and outrageous indignation, he, fearing eventual Southern defeat, took pen and paper and wrote, Every man should endeavor to understand the meaning of subjugation before it is too late. It means the history of this heroic struggle will be written by the enemy that our youth will be trained by northern school teachers, will learn from northern school books their version of the war, will be impressed by the influences of history and education to regard our gallant dead as traitors and our maimed veterans as fit objects for derision. It is said slavery is all we are fighting for, and if we give it up, we give up all. Even if this were true, which we deny, slavery is not all our enemies are fighting for. It is merely the pretense to establish sectional superiority and a more centralized form of government, and to deprive us of our rights and liberties. By the spring of 1865, Claiborne's fears were taking on reality. The Federal Union was victorious and occupied a devastated land. By March of 1867, radical Republicans controlled Congress and Reconstruction. Convinced of Southern insolence and animosity, the former Confederacy, save Tennessee, was divided into five military districts and reduced to territorial status. 
Southern passage of black codes and re-election of many ex-Confederates to local, state, and federal offices forced the heavy hand of a Congress that believed it had to not only win the war, but the peace. A song written in 1866 expressed the post-war sentiments of many ex-Confederates. Written by Major James Randolph, who served on Jeb Stewart's wartime staff, his incendiary lyrics captured what many in Congress feared. His twelfth and final verse went, And I don't want no pardon for what I was and am. I won't be reconstructed, and I don't care a damn. One ex-Confederate officer was the seething, living, breathing embodiment of that last verse, Jubal Anderson Early. Opinionated, profane, and cantankerous, the man who Lee referred to as his bad old man was in no way curbed by Southern defeat. He, like many ex-Confederates, chose to live in the past rather than, in his mind, the unpleasant present. A few words about this man who, in essence, became the chief architect of the lost cause. Raised in rural Virginia, the third of ten children, he entered West Point in 1833, where he simultaneously exhibited solid academics and bad behavior. In fact, Louis Armistead of Pickett, Pettigrew, Trimble, Charge fame left West Point after becoming so incensed at Early that at mess, Armistead broke a plate over the future Confederate general's head. Early graduated 18th of 50 in the class of 1837 and then served in the Seminole, Cherokee, and Mexican Wars. In the 1850s, he left the Army to become an attorney for Franklin County in the Virginia Piedmont. In 1861, he, a conservative Whig, attended the Virginia Secession Convention and voted not to secede because he represented an area that had tobacco ties with northern markets. However, his belief that the federal government did not have the right to send soldiers into Virginia without that state's permission pushed him over the edge. Committed to the Old Dominion and the Confederacy's cause, he led the 24th Virginia into war. He exhibited solid leadership, and that brought him rapid promotion. Others found him blunt, and that meant that while he was respected, he was not well-liked. The Ishmael of the Confederacy once admitted, I was never what is called a popular man. With dark eyes, beard, and dirty white hat topped with black plume, he had a hunched-over manner that made him look, as one soldier put it, as solemn as a country coroner going to his first inquest. Indeed, he was stooped, a condition brought about by a severe rheumatic condition which he contracted during the Mexican War. The ailment meant pain, and that made him constantly irritable. He spat tobacco and with a high piping voice swore with reckless abandon. He was the only man who dared curse in Robert E. Lee's presence, and his commander tolerated it because Early was so dependable. From command of a division, he rose to corps command in May of 1864 and was charged with defending the Shenandoah Valley. He did more than defend. 
Like Jackson in 1862, with whom he had served, Early cleared the valley of federal presence, and with only a force of some 14,000, even threatened Washington City. Though he had nowhere the number of troops to besiege or capture the capital city, he took solace that, as he put it, we haven't taken Washington, but we scared Abe Lincoln like hell. Withdrawing his force to the Shenandoah, the Second Valley Campaign continued. Though there was some success, by October of 1864, Early's force was all but destroyed by Major General Philip Sheridan, who then burned and wrecked the aptly named breadbasket of the Confederacy. For that reverse, Early was criticized bitterly, so much so that Lee did something he did only once. In March of 1865, the leader of the Army of Northern Virginia relieved him of Corps command. The timing did, however, spare Early the humiliation of surrender at Appomattox. When he learned of Lee's surrender, he headed west with the intent to join Confederate forces in the Trans-Mississippi Theater. However, en route, he learned of their capitulation and opted for self-exile. He did so, as he put it, to get out from the rule of the infernal Yankees. I cannot live under the same government with our enemies. I go, therefore, a voluntary exile from the home and graves of my ancestors to seek my fortunes anew in the world. He fled successively to Texas, Cuba, Mexico, and Canada. He lived off checks sent to him by family and friends. While in Mexico, he crossed pens with an old adversary, Philip Sheridan. Foreshadowing his tone and position in the near future, he and his Shenandoah Valley opponent disputed battle strengths and casualties during their confrontations. Sheridan stated that Early lost nearly 27,000 men. Early countered that his force never consisted of more than 14,000 and therefore could never have sustained the losses Sheridan trumpeted. Early's numbers were actually more accurate and in his mind sustained the honor of his outnumbered Confederates. But winning the argument was only a means to a greater end, and that was to compile a written record aimed at educating contemporary and future generations. While in Canada, he fumed bitterly over events in the United States and declared, I have got to that condition that I think I could scalp a Yankee woman and child without winking my eyes. It was there in Canada he published his version of the Second Valley Campaign. Published in 1866, it was entitled A Memoir of the Last War of the War for Independence in the Confederate States of America. His slanted 125-page perspective was the first printed narrative by a Southern general. It would be the first of many printed accounts, recollections, defenses, and accusations, for Jubal Early understood the power of the printed word. He considered relocating to New Zealand, where he would continue to write. But on Christmas Day, 1868, something occurred that changed his mind. President Andrew Johnson issued a blanket pardon to all former Confederate leaders. With the door opened, 
early returned to Virginia, and in 1869 moved to Lynchburg, where he picked up his law practice. He may have been back in the States, but he was most certainly unvanquished, as this next story illustrates. Soon after his return to Lynchburg, he was surprised to learn of newspaper speculation that he was a candidate for governor of Virginia. He crushed that rumor by writing to the editor, If I were made governor, I would have the whole state in another war in less than a week. Always dressed in Confederate gray suits, he maintained his unreconstructed posture and made it his life's mission to keep the memory of the Confederacy alive. Interestingly, his old boss, R.E. Lee, helped to kickstart Early's crusade. Despite Lee's decision to relieve him of command, Early never spoke negatively of his commander. And despite the decision forced upon him, Lee, in turn, appreciated Early's ability and displayed fondness for his bad old man. It is a fact that among Lee's corps commanders, two were given more dangerous and difficult assignments than any other, and those two were Stonewall Jackson and Jubal Early. In November of 1865, Early received a letter from Lee that, as we just mentioned, very likely sparked his desire to write his own memoirs. Lee hoped to write a history of the Army of Northern Virginia, but the loss of official papers during the hectic retreat from Richmond and Petersburg to Appomattox left him without documentation. Lee needed whatever materials Early still had in his possession. Seven and a half months earlier, Lee, thanks to Colonel Charles Marshall, who drafted the address, made mention of the Union's overwhelming resources and numbers in his farewell address. Now, to document that belief, Lee asked his old lieutenant about Confederate numbers at the principal battles between May 1864 and April 1865. My only object, wrote Lee in language early would echo for the rest of his days, is to transmit, if possible, the truth to posterity and do justice to our brave soldiers. Another request came from Lee in March of 1866 for reports of the operations of your commands in the Valley, Maryland, etc. Lee wanted all statistics as regards numbers, destruction of private property by the federal troops, etc., so that he might demonstrate the discrepancy and strength between the two armies, believing as he did that it would be difficult, in his words, to get the world to understand the odds against which we fought. He continued, The accusations against myself, Lee writing in reference to northern newspaper accounts, I have not thought proper to notice, or even to correct misrepresentations of my words and acts. Then, in afterthought, he continued, We shall have to be patient and suffer for a while at least. At present, the public mind is not prepared to receive the truth. Three months after he received Lee's first letter, Early completed a draft of his wartime memoirs that we referenced earlier. In essence, Lee's March 1866 letter might well have served as an outline for Early's book as it precisely covered the period Lee's letter defined. 
That March 1866 letter may also have served as a challenge for Early to rally against Lee's detractors, very likely distressed by the mention of attacks on his former commander. And make no mistake, there were those that did attack. Early may well have decided to persuade the public to, as he put it, receive the truth about his general to spell out in great detail and with an emphasis on evidence that befitted Early's years as a lawyer, make a convincing case for the greatness of both Lee and his army. Early discussed the need to tell the Confederate side of the war in a letter to Lee in late November 1868. All too aware of the far too many errors already in print, Early urged his commanding general not to His words, abandon your purpose of writing a history of the operations of the Army of Northern Virginia. At one point in his letter, he got down to the very heart of the matter. He wrote, the most that is left to us is the history of the struggle, and I think that ought to be accurately written. We lost nearly everything but honor, and that should be religiously guarded. And let's be honest, in this crusade, Jubal Early also sought to guard and protect his own long-term military reputation. As he wrote to another ex-Confederate officer, The most important books of all are those put into the hands of the rising generation. Early wrote that aware that there was already a published school book that took Early to task for not capturing Washington City in the summer of 1864. Fully aware of the dig, he wrote, It is by no means a pleasant reflection that I am to be held up in the light before not only the rising generation of this day, but all those to come hereafter. With that, he put other Confederate officers on the alert to stand at the ready, to correct versions of the war in print because, again his words, we all know how hard it is to eradicate early impressions. This became his mantra for the last 25 years of his life in lectures, writing, and personal correspondence. Jubal Early made it his mission to place his impressions of the war on record and would do it in various and sundry methods, associations, and organizations. Perhaps his most powerful spin doctor was through his presidency of the Southern Historical Society and its papers. Many historians have noted his powerful presence in both, and all acknowledge that he became a leading arbiter and authority in questions relating to Confederate military history. No question. Jubal Early orchestrated the historical decapitation of James Longstreet, who dared to criticize R.E. Lee and print. And when Early struck and did so completely, other ex-Confederate officers took notice. If Jubal Early could destroy a soldier of Longstreet's wartime caliber, no one felt safe if they disagreed or were critical of Lee's record. As one former Confederate artillerist, Robert Stiles, wrote, As long as the old hero lived, no man ever took up his pen to write a line about the great conflict without the fear of Jubal Early before his eyes. 
Indeed, he was the one who would, for future generations, interpret personalities and key military events in publications between 1866 and 1872. In essence, these were his main points. Robert E. Lee was the best and most admirable general of the war. Confederate armies faced overwhelming odds and mounted a gallant resistance. Ulysses S. Grant paled in comparison to Lee as a soldier. Stonewall Jackson deserved a place in the Confederate pantheon of heroes, but behind Lee. And finally, Virginia was without question the most important theater of combat. Back in 1866, when Jubal Early published his memoir, he unabashedly announced in his preface his, in his words, profound love and veneration for his commanding general. It is therefore not surprising that when Jubal Early learned of Lee's passing in October of 1870, he was crushed. Only weeks after his commander's death, he and determined veterans of the Army of Northern Virginia met in Richmond. Gathered in a Presbyterian church, their mission was to gain possession of the remains of their commander. They were incensed that they had been left out of the funeral activities in Lexington, Virginia. They were angry that Lexington had been chosen as the site for Lee's tomb and that a commissioned Edward Valentine statue would also be located in the little Shenandoah Valley town. From that meeting in Richmond, the Lee Monument Association was created, and that group would not be satisfied until the main monument to their general was located in Richmond, where he would be, as they put it, accessible to all his boys. Early in the organization wanted Lee's statue in Richmond's Hollywood Cemetery, where thousands of Confederate soldiers were buried, and thus, in their words... When the first flush of the resurrection morn tinges the skies, may their unsealed eyes behold the grand figure of their wartime chief. Of course, their efforts flew in the face of Lexington's Lee Memorial Association, but in a rift-healing attempt with a rival association in Lexington, Jubal Early was invited to make an address at recently renamed Washington and Lee on the anniversary of Lee's birthday. And so it was the 19th of January, 1872. Perhaps on that auspicious day, Patrick Claiborne's searing warning that only victors get to write the war was rattling somewhere around in Early's bearded head. Standing before a large multitude, Early, in his address, highlighted themes he and his old chief had raised in their years of correspondence. In his address, he mentioned several times the overwhelming power of the North and lauded Lee and his gallant soldiers in their struggles with an industrial juggernaut. To those gathered, he said, General Lee had not been conquered in battle, but surrendered because he had no longer an army with which to give battle. What he surrendered was the skeleton, the mere ghost of the Army of Northern Virginia, which had been gradually worn down by the combined agencies of numbers, steam power, railroads, mechanism, and all the resources of physical science. 
Early continued, years of federal offensives fueled by unlimited manpower and material wealth had finally produced that exhaustion of our army and resources and that accumulation of numbers on the other side which wrought the final disaster. He employed his audience not to turn their backs, as he put it, on the graves of our fallen heroes, and to, again his words, cherish the remembrance of their deeds and see that justice is done to their memories. To him, the Confederate experiment had been a noble attempt to protect Southern principles, and early charged veterans to hold dear, again his words, the holy memories connected with our glorious, though unsuccessful, struggle. Not done, he turned now to the women in attendance. He felt confident that they would, in his words, continue to honor the brave dead and strew flowers on their graves. It would be their duty to instill the sentiments of honor and patriotism into the hearts of the rising and future generations and teach them to venerate the memory, emulate the virtues, and cherish the principles of those who fell fighting for your homes, your all. Jubal Early saw Robert E. Lee as central to the process of remembering and honoring the Confederacy, just as the people of the Confederacy had seen him as central to their hopes for independence. Early insisted, It is vain work for us to check anywhere to a parallel to the great character which had won our admiration and love. Our beloved chief stands like some lofty column which rears its head among the highest in grandeur, simple, pure and sublime, needing no borrowed luster, and he is all our own. We have also a special duty to discharge. It is proper that the tomb of our beloved commander in this chapel is suitably decorated and honored. Let it be our especial charge to see that the pious work is accomplished, and let us also see that a monument to his glorious memory is erected at the Confederate capital in defense of which his wondrous talents and sublime virtues were displayed, which shall proclaim to all the ages that the soldiers that fought under him remained true to him in death and were not unworthy to have been the followers of Robert E. Lee. When Jubal Anderson early returned to his seat, he had initiated two powerful movements that were essentially one and the same the rise of the Lee cultists, and the birth of the lost cause. Now, the term itself, the lost cause, was not new. It first appeared in the title of an 1866 book written by Richmond examiner, editor, and historian Edward A. Pollard. His work was entitled The Lost Cause, a new southern history of the War of the Confederates. But it was to be Early's writings and orations in the 1870s that gave life to a movement that still serves as a long-standing literary and cultural phenomena. Most in Lexington that day and all across the old Confederacy embraced the major elements of Early's address. And they would be expanded upon and repeated endlessly by future Southern lecturers and writers of the post-war years. In no particular order, here are several of the more prominent foundations of the lost cause. 
Confederate generals like Robert E. Lee, Albert Sidney Johnston, and Thomas Jonathan Stonewall Jackson represented the virtues of Southern nobility and fought bravely and fairly. Conversely, Northern generals, particularly William T. Sherman and Philip Sheridan, were creatures with low moral standards in large part because they subjected the Southern civilian population to indignities like Sherman's march to the sea and Sheridan's torching of the Shenandoah Valley. U.S. Grant does not escape criticism either. As much was written at that time about his drinking— and in battle, sending in wave after wave of Union soldiers. Lost cause advocates believed him a soulless butcher. A passage in Jefferson Davis's The Rise and Fall of the Confederate Government highlights another lost cause tenet. Published in 1881, Davis wrote, The servile instincts of slaves rendered them contented with their lot, and their patient toil blessed the land of their abode with unmeasured riches. Their strong local and personal attachment secured faithful service. Never was there happier dependence of labor and capital on each other. The tempter came like the serpent of Eden and decoyed them with magic word of freedom. He put in their hands and trained their humble but emotional natures to deeds of violence and bloodshed and sent them out to devastate their benefactors. In other words, Davis believed slavery was a benign institution. Slaves were loyal, faithful, until corrupted by northern presence and ideals. Then there's the very motivation for secession and war. Southern soldiers did not fight for what they believed was right. They battled for what they knew was right. Like the Greeks of old, men of the South fought for homes, the graves of their sires and their native land. There's more to the lost cause. Losses on the battlefield were inevitable due to northern superiority in resources and manpower. Also, losses occurred as a result of betrayal and or incompetence on the part of one of Lee's lieutenants. Depending on when and who you asked, that culprit might be George Pickett or Richard Stoddard Ewell or Jeb Stewart, Stonewall Jackson at the Seven Days Campaign, or immediately after the war, even Jubal Early but not after the 1870s, for the ultimate villain was then James Longstreet at Second Manassas and particularly at Gettysburg. Back to another element on the question of secession and war. The lost cause embraced states' rights rather than slavery for causation. Lost cause disciples believed the act of secession was a justifiable constitutional response to northern cultural and economic aggression. Early's 1872 speech, which highlighted many of these just stated tenets, was widely distributed as a pamphlet and still stands as a classic lost cause tract. Equating Lee and the Confederacy, Early was vigilant in defense. To him, Lee's Achilles Hill, Gettysburg, was an instance where his subordinates failed him. And it was certainly not he, Ewell or Stewart, 
but James Longstreet, who failed to execute a sound plan of battle. The fall of Richmond and subsequent Confederate surrender were, in his words, consequences of events in the West and Southwest and not directly from operations in Virginia. Ever alert, Early was always at the ready for anyone to challenge his assertions. For example, when Adam Badeau, Grant's military secretary during 1864-65, placed Union and Confederate numbers in early May 1864 at 98,000 Union and 72,000 Confederate, Early lashed out and characterized the article as part of, his words, a persistent and systematic effort to falsify the truth. In another instance, Early addressed a reply to a London Standard editor that Grant had 141,000 men while Lee had some 50,000. Now, in truth, Grant's advantage was actually about two to one. It was the man from Galena who particularly caught Early's steely eye. To him, the Union General-in-Chief, U.S. Grant, was little more than a butcher a man who threw unending ranks of hapless soldiers against Lee's veterans. Early never hinted that Grant might be considered a master of maneuver, whose willingness to take breathtaking risk and ability to rebound from reverses brought Union victories at Vicksburg, Chattanooga, and in Virginia. And make no mistake, in Early's writings, Western theater events were mentioned, but only occasionally. Rather than overly criticize Confederate officers and armies there, Early simply chose to overlook them. To him, Richmond and Virginia were the cockpits of the war, and for almost all his directives, the main organ for dissemination were the papers of the Southern Historical Society. It was convenient they were published in Richmond. Now, in spite of Early's literary avalanche on and about the lost cause, some added and some dared to counter. Other works, The Southern Bivouac in 1882 and The Confederate Veteran in 1893, sprang up in, respectively, Louisville and Nashville, but they never approached the impact the Southern Historical Society's papers had on influencing historians, and therefore, and this is important, the interpretation and writing in the future about the war. No question, ever since the Southern Historical Society began its mission to tell their story, legions of historians and other writers have mined the 52 volumes of its papers for material on the Confederate war effort. And in doing so, the lost cause interpretation gained wide acceptance in the 19th century and still lingers in the 21st. The intoxicating power? Well, indeed, several of the lost cause premises are based in part on fact. Robert E. Lee was a gifted soldier who inspired and led an army in unbelievable victories. Confederate forces did have to contend with serious disadvantages in numbers and materiel. And there were more than a few in the North who complained of Grant's hammering tactics in 1864. Stonewall Jackson served Lee incredibly well as a lieutenant. And most people at the time, Northern, 
Southern and European did view Virginia as the crucial cockpit of the war, as have a number of historians since. The distortions resulted when Early and other lost cause disciples denied that Lee had any faults or lost any battles, focused on northern numbers and material superiority, but ignored Confederate advantages denied Grant any virtues or greatness, and paid attention to the rest of the Confederacy only when convenient to explain Southern failures in Virginia and to dismantle more of the Lost Cause's foundation, we know that slaves were not complacent and happy in their subservient condition, and states' rights was nothing more than a cover for protecting the thing that drove the landed and aristocratic elements to call for secession in the first place. And that was to protect their private property, which included their slaves. Yet as the 19th century gave way to the 20th, the lost cause was trumpeted, and the first 12 real motion picture in America, D.W. Griffith's 1915 silent epic, The Birth of a Nation. And it heightened in the decade of the 20s during a literary period known as the Southern Renaissance. Douglas Sothel Friedman picked up the mantra in the 1930s with his Pulitzer Prize-winning R.E. Lee. The four-volume Civil War standard locked yet another generation into the myth of the lost cause. And woe to anyone who at any time challenged those tenets. For example, Alan T. Nolan's 1996 Lee Considered, General Robert E. Lee and Civil War History, followed a path first paved by Thomas L. Connolly, who penned a 1977 work entitled the Marble Man, Robert E. Lee and His Image in American Society. Both Nolan and Connolly questioned, particularly one element of the lost cause that made instant waves. Both questioned the Lee tradition. And Nolan's Lee considered the attorney and historian argued that Lee's famous victories came at such a high cost in manpower that they shortened the life of the Confederacy. Academicians welcomed the study, but the work took a severe beating from Lee admirers. Nolan was called a bootless revisionist. And in Jubal Early-like language, one retired military leader read Nolan's work and then reached out to Civil War scholars with the following. I call upon every true student of the Civil War, every son and daughter of the veterans of that war, both North and South, and every organization formed to study, research, reenact, preserve, and remember our Civil War heritage, not to purchase Nolan's book. If you have it already, burn it, as it is not worth recycling. UNC writer-in-residence, former naval officer and historian Thomas B. Buell, felt the same heat when his 1997 work entitled The Warrior Generals, Combat Leadership in the Civil War, dared to show that Lee was prone to mistakes, was human, vulnerable, and though it may be one of the best-selling historical novels about the war, 
Michael Shara's 1974 The Killer Angels, went so far as to make James Longstreet his southern hero and portrayed Lee as sickly and overly aggressive. Shara was skewered by Lee loyalists, even to the point that he was not welcomed by business owners in the town he reintroduced to an entire nation, Gettysburg. Yes, Jubal Early probably bored a few feet out of his grave. But not to worry, Jubal, for there have been far more works that ride to the lost cause rescue. For example, the man who wrote the 1986 work Forrest Gump, novelist and nonfiction writer Winston Groom, wrote a book published in 1995 entitled Shrouds of Glory, From Atlanta to Nashville the last campaign of the Civil War. Though he chose to write about the war outside of Virginia, he paid respect to Early and Freeman when his narrative included numerous glowing references to Lee and Jackson and noted Grant's inability to, despite superior manpower, defeat his wily foe. To him, Grant was a butcher, a murderer. But what of other elements in the legacy of the lost cause and what of contemporary takes by historians on Jubal Early's creation? Well, first, some debunking of other elements of the lost cause. The assertion that slavery was insignificant in causing secession is absolutely preposterous and does not stand up when one reviews 19th century American political history. Although the issue may have been muted throughout the early years of this country's history, slavery, expansion, and sectionalism walked hand in hand, beginning with the Missouri Compromise in 1820. Indeed, that controversy was the first time the issue of slavery was directly addressed before the Houses of Congress. Over the course of the next three decades, slavery reared its ugly head repeatedly over the location of a transcontinental railroad, the gag rule, and the debates over admission of each and every new state, the Wilmot Proviso, the Mexican War, its existence in the District of Columbia, the Compromise of 1850, the Kansas-Nebraska Act and Popular Sovereignty, the rise of the Republican Party, the splitting of the Democratic Party, the dispute over the admission of Kansas, and the repeated mention of slavery in numerous state secession ordinances. Future Confederate President Jefferson Davis frequently spoke to the United States Senate about the significance of slavery in the South and warned of secession if what he perceived as northern threats to the institution continued. And his vice president, Alexander H. Stevens, in a noteworthy speech in Charleston, characterized the great truth of slavery, calling it the foundation and cornerstone of the Confederacy. Even the Confederate Constitution confirmed the importance of slavery and its protection when Article 1, Section 9, and Article 4 provided for the protection of the right of property in slaves. And to repeat, slaves were not benign, happy darkies existing under the watchful and paternalistic eyes of their masters. The system was beastly, cruel, dehumanizing, and quite simply, no one listening to this podcast would want themselves or their children to exist in such a state. 
Now, addressing the so-called unity of the Southern position, which the lost cause professes, I personally have always believed that Southerners made lousy Confederates. Simply put, there was no united Confederate front, particularly in eastern Tennessee, western North Carolina, and even more noteworthy, Virginia, where its western counties seceded from pro-secession Virginia to form West Virginia. No question, throughout the 11 Confederate states, draft dodgers, lukewarm Confederates, and Unionists were divisive. Then, as Confederate shadows lengthened, there was more fracturing when the Confederate government had to resort to drastic measures in an effort to resist and defend. In short, a region and people that trumpeted states' rights watched its government turn to measures that smacked of federalism. One might wonder what was the driving force for the creation of the lost cause in the first place. Yes, we know Lee and Early wanted to tell their side of the story, but there's more. As Princeton's Pulitzer Prize-winning historian James M. McPherson wrote, The South was not only invaded and conquered, it was utterly destroyed. By 1865, the Union forces had destroyed two-thirds of the assessed value of Southern wealth, two-fifths of the South's livestock, and one-quarter of her white men between the ages of 20 and 40. More than half the farm machinery was ruined, and the damages to railroads and industries were incalculable. Southern wealth decreased by 60%. Leaders of such a catastrophe had to explain, to make account for that, for themselves in making decisions that led to secession and war. Justification was required. As ex-Confederate officer Clement A. Evans of Georgia rationalized, if we cannot justify the South in an act of secession, we will go down in history solely as a brave, impulsive, but rash people who attempted in an illegal manner to overthrow the union of our country. Yale professor of history Roland G. Osterweiss wrote, The legend of the lost cause began as mostly a literary expression from the despair of a bitter, defeated people over a lost identity. It was a landscape dotted with figures drawn mainly out of the past. The chivalric planter, the magnolia-scented southern belle, the good gray Confederate veteran, once a knight of the field and saddle an obliging old Uncle Remus. All these, while quickly enveloped in a golden haze, became very real to the people of the South, who found the symbols useful in the reconstituting of their shattered civilizations. They perpetuated the ideals of the Old South and brought a sense of comfort to the new. The University of Virginia's noted emeritus historian Gary Gallagher added, the architects of the lost cause acted from various motives. They collectively sought to justify their own actions and allow themselves and other former Confederates to find something positive in all-encompassing failure. They also wanted to provide their children and future generations of white Southerners with, as they hoped would be, a correct narrative of the war. Astute Northern observers witnessed this creation at its inception. 
one was a native Virginian, Union Major General George Henry Thomas, the Rock of Chickamauga. In November of 1868, he wrote, The greatest efforts made by the defeated insurgents since the close of the war have been to promulgate the idea that the cause of liberty, justice, humanity, equality, and all the calendar of the virtues of freedom suffered violence and wrong when the effort for Southern independence failed. This is, of course, was intended as a species of political cant, whereby the crime of treason might be covered with a counterfeit varnish of patriotism, so that the precipitators of the rebellion might go down in history hand in hand with the defenders of the government, thus wiping out with their own hands their own stains, a species of self-forgiveness amazing in its effrontery. Another northerner who attacked one of the pillars of the lost cause, the adoration of Robert E. Lee, was no surprise here, Frederick Douglass, who, when noting friendly treatment of the southern general by northern newspapers, complained, Is it not about time that this bombastic laudation of the rebel chief should cease? We can scarcely take up a newspaper that is not filled with nauseating flatteries of the late Robert E. Lee. Let's return to a more recent observer, the same Alan T. Nolan, who was attacked for being critical of Lee. Nolan believed the lost cause did more than just provide a salve for the South, but in his words, facilitated the reunification of the North and South. By the 1880s, and with pretty much universal concern for the plight of the South in Reconstruction, Nolan noted, again, that the signs of respect from former foes and northern publishers made acceptance of reunion easier. He did add that the reunion was exclusively a white man's phenomena, and the price of the reunion was the sacrifice of African Americans. Popular historian Bruce Catton agreed, and so does UNC's esteemed historian Jacqueline Dowd Hall, who acknowledges that lost cause ideology was fully developed by 1900, and by then, much of an overall picture was left blank. She writes, neither the trauma of slavery for African Americans nor their heroic, heartbreaking struggle for freedom found a place in that story. The Lost Cause narrative also suppressed the memories of many white Southerners. Memories of how, under slavery, power bred cruelty. Memories of the bloody, unbearable realities of war. Written out, too, were the competing memories and identities that set white Southerners against one another. Pitting the planters against the upcountry. Unionists against Confederates populist and mill workers against the corporations, home front women against the war-besotted broken men. Still, regardless of these noted fallacies in the lost cause, the theme to the vast majority of Southerners and Northerners was and often still is their reality. The theme so rooted that indeed it took and has taken on religious-like dimensions. 
Former Ole Miss historian Charles Reagan Wilson argued that many white Southerners latched onto the myth, in part because they felt that defeat was God's punishment for their sins, and they needed something to justify, to explain, to feel exonerated. And no doubt, during Reconstruction, politicians sure played upon this. Take, for example, the governor's race in South Carolina in 1876. White Democrats projected the lost cause scenario through Wade Hampton Day celebrations, and their rally cry was Hampton or Hell. Hampton's opponent was Republican and incumbent Governor Daniel H. Chamberlain. The election was cast as a religious struggle between good and evil, and calling for redemption, Hampton was victorious. Indeed, when every southern state was reclaimed by democratic home rule, the state was said to have been redeemed. Another twist of the lost cause, which became a rallying point for southern women, they seized upon the ideology to ensure their own niche. Rather than accept the role of just loyal supporters, certain southern women emphasized female activism, initiative, leadership. They maintained that in the absence of husbands, fathers, and sons, southern women took command, found substitute foods, rediscovered traditional skills, ran farms, and managed plantations, which they did. But most significantly, their most prominent role in propagating the lost cause came in the memorializing of Confederate dead. The United Daughters of the Confederacy decorated graves and helped sponsor and erect memorials all across the South. They lobbied for state archives and museums, national historic sites, historic highways, compiled genealogies, interviewed former soldiers, wrote textbooks, and looked after Confederate cemeteries. And indeed, it was those same white women who paved the way for what would become Memorial Day. Today, as we've noted, the aura and symbols of the lost cause still flourish. Early architects like Jubal Early, J. William Jones, and William Nelson Pendleton would be smiling from ear to ear. So would Douglas Freeman and fellow Virginia disciple Clifford Dowdy. As we mentioned earlier, it was embraced by the film classic Birth of a Nation, and it screamed from the pages and cinema reels of Margaret Mitchell's Gone with the Wind. And though the sensitivity meter has been pinned in the red as of late, the lost cause, in part because of the perceived threat to Southern icons by all this sensitivity, continues to be embraced by those who maintain that it is their right and heritage to display such symbols of the Confederacy like its battle flag. It is interesting to note that that issue led to a Supreme Court case. It was heard March 23, 2015. In Walker v. Texas Division, Sons of Confederate Veterans, the case centered on whether or not the state of Texas could deny a request by the Sons of Confederate Veterans for vanity plates that incorporated a Confederate battle flag. On June 18, 2015, the court ruled. It ruled 5-4 to four that Texas was entitled to reject the Sons of Confederate Veterans' proposal. 
So where are we today? Contemporary historians, by and large, agree that secession was motivated by slavery. But keep in mind, the reason for secession is a very different issue from justifying why each individual chose to march off to war. As of late, academicians continue to attack the lost cause. Prominent historian William C. Davis, formerly of Virginia Tech, acknowledged that as to the lost cause, his words, causes and effects of the war have been manipulated and mythologized to suit political and social agendas, past and present. Yale historian David William Blight opines that a key characteristic in the lost cause has been, his words, its use of white supremacy as both means and ends. The lost cause legacy is a caricature of the truth. The caricature wholly misrepresents and distorts the facts of the matter. Surely it is time to start again in our understanding of this decisive element of our past and to do so from the premises of history, unadulterated by the distortions, falsehoods, and romantic sentimentality of the myth of the lost cause. And just as there are those eager to dismantle the lost cause, oh, how there are those ready and willing to defend Twins James Ronald and Walter Donald Kennedy, native Mississippians and founders of the League of the South, answered historians like Davis, Blight, and others with their 1991 work entitled, The South Was Right. They play down the role of slavery. They trumpet Southern nationalism. They describe terrorist methods and heinous crimes committed by Union soldiers during the war. And in one chapter entitled, The Yankee Campaign of Cultural Genocide, goes so far as to state that they can show, their words, from the United States government's own official records that the primary motivating factor was a desire of those in power to punish and to exterminate the Southern nation and in many cases to procure the extermination of the Southern people. In the conclusion of their work, the Kennedys write, The Southern people have all the power we need to put an end to forced busing, affirmative action extravagant welfare spending, the punitive Southern-only Voting Rights Act, the refusal of the Northern liberals to allow Southern conservatives to sit on the United States Supreme Court, and the economic exploitation of the South into a secondary economic status. What is needed is not more power, but the will to use the power in hand. The choice is now yours. Ignore the challenge and remain a second-class citizen or unite with your fellow Southerners and help start a Southern political revolution. No question, their position is neo-Confederate, but in spite of academicians and so-called experts on each side of the equation, in the popular mind, the lost cause still holds sway, and it is more than a regional phenomenon. It's national. Indeed, as often noted when debate centers on the American Civil War, the wounds still bleed. So, in these sensitivity-charged times, we return to certain certainties. Like the laws of physics, history has its own dynamic of action 
and reaction. With attacks on Confederate symbols, there will continue to be equal and opposite amounts of reaction. Reaction to a concept that has been with us since the 1870s that reinforces the belief held by some that the American Civil War is not over, that the, if you will, longest ceasefire in American history continues, all reminding us yet again that history often is in the eye of the beholder. One person's fixed truth is another's dastardly lie. All of it bringing to mind Napoleon Bonaparte's observation that history is a set of lies people have agreed upon. When next we gather, we head to the Western Theater to men and armies intent on defending and taking a place that was of great strategic importance to the Confederacy. Indeed, the last great Southern citadel on the Mississippi River. Next time, we tell the remarkable stories of Confederate defense and Union schemes to open the Mississippi River, and in doing so, splitting the Confederacy. Next time, the story of Vicksburg. Over the years, we at Threads from the National Tapestry have appreciated all our patrons. But today we welcome another that serves as an historic first, our first international patron. Thank you so very much, Owen Ryan, from the Emerald Isle, Ireland. Erin Gobra. This is Fred Kiger. Thank you for listening. This podcast is sponsored by The Badge Maker, your go-to source for American Civil War Corps badges and other handmade, American-made historical reproductions. Contact the proprietor, Joseph Valicenti, and place your orders at www.civilwarcorpsbadges.com. That's www.civilwarcorpsbadges.com.